Good morning. The text we'll be looking at is printed in your bulletin. We're going to begin a new series uh, this morning looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie The Right Stuff. It is uh, really a historical depiction of what happened when uh, flyers early on uh, were trying to figure out how to break the sound barrier. No one had actually done it previous to that point in time, and everyone actually thought it was impossible. Uh, they had various pilots try it, only to find the plane would disintegrate right as they reached the sound barrier. One pilot figured out how to do it, and what he discovered was this. Right as he approached the sound barrier, the controls in the airplane began to work backward for him. And in one critical scene, instead of pulling up to raise noise, he pushed it forward to actually break the barrier. That's sort of a graphic illustration of what Jesus is going to be doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's taking the controls and he's making things work backward. And he's taking God's people where they've never been before. This section that we'll be looking at over uh, during the fall really is one of the most well-known sections in the Bible, and yet it's probably the most misunderstood. Jesus gives us a glimpse at what life looks like outside the box, outside the boundaries. He colors in places where we normally wouldn't color. And he gives us a life that actually, by all descriptions, would be a life that we should envy. What the Sermon on the Mount is not is not telling us how to behave. And what do I mean by that? He's not saying just try your best to live like this. This isn't timeless truths about human behavior. Why would I say that? Well, if Jesus actually is saying that, then he's wrong. What do I mean? Mourners, according to the description, often go uncomforted. And we know from experience the meek do not inherit the earth. They're those who long for justice, and they take it right to their graves. We live in an upside-down world. But Jesus is saying in him, this world is being set right side up, that God is doing something new and different. The way the world normally works, the controls are actually going to work the opposite direction. This is good news, what he's giving us, not good advice. Look with me as I read from Matthew chapter 5, just these 12 verses. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'd be with us as we look into this well-known portion from your word. We come from different places this morning. Some of us come excited about you and what you're doing in our lives. Others, that described us at one time but no longer. Still, others of us are perplexed and skeptical about you and your people. And no matter where we come from, we pray that you would be with us, that you would teach us, 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Who are the people that you most envy uh, that you get to be around and sort of spend time with? I'll be honest with you. I, I envy uh, people who can retire early um, these days. I, I mean, I sit and dream about what that might look like if I didn't have to go to work, <laughs> um, if I didn't have to do this anymore. Uh, what would that mean? I envy people that can... Uh, Really, a life of leisure is what I envy the most. We all have people that we envy, that we're jealous of, that we crave their life. For some of us, it's being rich and beautiful. For others of us, it's being rich or beautiful. Either one would be fine. We desire uh, success. We admire people that we think are successful. And we try to emulate them. We spend hours in the backyard throwing the ball we spend hours singing or dancing or reading biographies about people that we want to emulate. Others of us, we spend hours shopping so that we can look marvelous. And still others of us, as we get older, um, we know that we'll never be what we thought we were going to be. Um, so what we do then is we just transfer that to our children. Um, instead of dreaming about ourselves, right, we dream that our children will now play golf to packed golf courses. They will sing to packed auditoriums. We long for our children to live out our fantasies. What should we spend our time longing for? This section really turns our definition of a hero upside down because he defines or gives defining characteristics of a life that's to be envied. And these characteristics are developed over a lifetime some have said look what jesus is saying here is that to be blessed really means to be happy but that's really a very poor translation or it really doesn't get at what jesus is getting at at all because what he's driving at can't be reduced to some kind of subjective state to be blessed really is what god thinks of them the kind of person that's to be envied, and it's unexpected. And I'm going to start with just the first one this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a certain primacy. Jesus begins with this one for a very specific reason. Because he sets the scene for everything else that comes after this. I don't know if you notice, Jesus takes his disciples up on a mountain. It parallels exactly what Moses did in the Old Testament. Jesus forming his people, beginning the new Israel, so to speak, giving them the nature of the kingdom and their life in it. So what does he mean when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit? Some have noted sort of the differences between what Matthew says here and what Luke says in his gospel. Because what Luke says is, blessed are the poor. And because of that, some have really taken this to being something physical, that Jesus is really sort of denouncing material wealth and game. He's making a social statement. It's an expression that finds its place in the Old Testament, specifically in the Proverbs. But this wording that we translate poor, lowly might be another way to describe it. Jesus is not offering any immediate relief here. Actually, to try to make this physical or financial really narrows it way too much. But it's also not a statement of personal insignificance. 
or that somehow I have to view myself as without value. Instead, it's quite the opposite of that. This is actually a profound statement because what Matthew has in view is this idea of spiritual poverty. We know what physical poverty is, but what does he mean by this? What it simply means is that someone who doesn't have any means to establish a relationship with God. To enroll it even further, someone without moral virtues would be another description to commend ourselves. Someone whose only hope is a gift. That they might be given wealth, but it wouldn't be wealth of their own. Or they might be given a goodness, but not a goodness that they possess. Not only is it profound, but it is exclusive as well. And here's the rub for many people. It isn't for everyone. Jesus states this very clearly, actually, in this passage. It's only for those who possess nothing, would be another way to describe it. It's exclusive, that's true, but it's the broadest type of exclusiveness that you could ever find. Because what he says is this, not that the religious are in, not that the good are in, not that the moral are in, or the beautiful, or the clever, or the wealthy. Only the empty actually are in. I had a friend of mine that lost their business and they had to file bankruptcy. He tells the story that at his hearing, the bankruptcy hearing, they actually counted his jewelry, and I mean the jewelry that he actually had on. See, what are you before God? Because this is sort of the first place on the road to becoming a Christian. Some would respond to this by saying, well, I'm a little poor, but I'm not that poor. Honestly, only an American could mean could come up with something like that, that there's some idea of a little poverty. So what would this actually look like? What's the practice of this? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Just the depth of this. This is a present practice. There's no ability to live this life before God, and many of us fall down here. This can't be a one-time expression or even a beginning expression. What I'm saying is this. This never changes. Some of us view the Christian life as like riding a bike. In other words, thanks for saving me, God, watch me now kind of thing. We would never say that, but we, in practice, we do things like this. We pass right over praying and go right into doing because what we're really saying is what I do it actually is what matters. That's what actually has significance. In the New Testament, Jesus says this, we can do nothing apart from him. It's not just the depth of what Jesus is driving at. It's also the display. Don't, wouldn't you long for a place where you could stop pretending? A place where there's no such thing as proficiency where there's no quick fixes to the problems that plague us all. Instead, what we know is that in what Jesus is driving at is a greater dependency on him. No task too low, no wages too small, no people too ungrateful or undeserving. One writer said this, if you really knew what I was like, you wouldn't listen to my sermons. But then he goes on to say, but if I really knew what you were like, I would stop preaching. Here's the question. What do you display to those around you? Do you display proficiency or poverty? Do you leave those around you with the impression that you have it all together? 
that you're very successful? Or do you look down your nose on others? Or do you look for their failures? I know I've heard it in Christian circles. I'm being discerning or observant. Some of you here have had a first-hand experience of this. It shows a deep misunderstanding of the nature of Christianity. For most of us, what we really deeply want is we want applause. We want admiration. After all, who admires the poor, right? Who admires the failures? And that's exactly what Jesus is driving at here. These are the ones that we should envy. These are the ones that we should emulate, actually. If this doorway is open to everyone, if it's a gift, it's really for those that are empty, how do we get it? Well, see, this is not a task. I'll come back to this again. It's not a task to be performed. Jesus isn't trying to shame us or embarrass us. This isn't... This command or this requirement or this entry is not a course in self-criticism where we actually mentally just beat ourselves up for not being like this. What this is is found in the one who's actually giving this sermon. Because no one displays poverty better than Jesus. I mean, think about this. He had all the resources he needed for his life, for this life. After all, he was God himself perfect in wisdom and power. Yet, if you read his life, what you find is that when he was tempted, he expresses not proficiency, not that I can handle this. Instead, he expresses complete dependency. If there ever was anyone ever born who could get away with just a little bit of prayer, it would have been him. Um, Yet, what you see in his life, he wrestles for guidance. He agonizes for strength to triumph over temptation. Even in the garden, he prays to the point of sweating blood. Jesus submits himself to John's baptism, a baptism of repentance of all things. Why would he do that? And then we go all the way to the cross. He didn't have to die. By nature, he was God. He could have brought himself down. The people that were around him that mocked him were right. That was actually the ridicule. They were laughing at him because of this. What we see is his life, but then what we see is your glory. It was God's purpose to give the poor in spirit the very wealth of heaven. You notice what's promised here, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It was necessary that Jesus would come like this. It was required because we require it. Simply put, do you live out of that wealth that resource, or do you claw for your own? It shows up in our absolute exhaustion that, that we are a people that cannot rest. We can't rest in what Jesus has done for us. Do you live out of that? I'm not sure who this is from. A distinguished professor at the University of Chicago tells of his three-year-old daughter, granddaughter who liked to visit him late in the afternoon so she could walk home with him. One day the preschooler asked to ride on her grandfather's shoulders across campus. That day another professor who saw them said with a twinkle in his eye, My goodness, how you've grown! You're about three times as tall as you were last week. And the little girl replied this, Not all of this is me. As a Christian, not all of this is you. 
It really is about the one who would come for you. Do you rest in what he's done for you? Do you come empty needing to be filled? And do you display that emptiness to the world around you? Let's pray together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May that be true of us this morning. In all the ways that we tried to cling to our proficiency and our perfections and our performances, help us, O oh God, to empty our hands and empty our lives that we might be filled with you. For in you we lose nothing. Apart from you we gain nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.